for a contemporary Christian is a fully valid Christian statement to say stuff like, my queer empowerment is inspired by the Lutheran theologian Rudolf Bullman's reading of how St. Augustine approaches Paul's view of sin and redemption. Christians can jam all over world history like that. Beginning from a 2020s issue, back through 20th century Germany, then jump to the late Middle Ages, leap a millennia back to 4th century Africa, landing then in 1st century Palestine, using all these different figures to understand a contemporary question, uh, though they would probably be horrified, each in, each, you know, in their own vastly unrelated contexts and you know, heteronormatives, and the mere thought of the sodomite debauchery of the 2020s queer thinking, you know, that their voices are then being harnessed to uh, legitimize. But if you are a Nordic polytheist or animist, uh, it seems to me that you are often not allowed this freedom of organic thinking with your past or dialoguing with your past. It seems to me that you're sort of expected to mount these scholarly defenses for some sort of historic accuracy, even when dialoguing between contexts that are much closer to each other than, for instance, Rudolf Bultmann and, and August Augustin, right? Such as like Scandinavian folklore and, and, and pre-Christian Scandinavian religion. People approaching Nordic religion often spend quite a lot of, of energy um, using this historic source criticism, or indeed imagined or imitated historic source criticism, questioning the relevance <clears throat> of historically problematic sources, like, for instance, the Icelandic author uh, Snorri Sturluson or the Danish uh, chronicler Saxo Grammaticus. They were Christian writers and they were deeply informed by their medieval Christian agendas. So from the historic point of view, they're problematic when talking about pre-Christian religion. Um, this video here is a series of, of reflections on how to recover animist ways of knowing in the way that we are approaching historically problematic source material, which may indeed hold important threads for how to recover Euro-traditional animism, but which is also deeply colored by the agendas of their medieval Christian authors. The reflection is un unfortunately a little bit too long for one video, so I'm trying to split it in two, and this video here is, is just the first part. As suggested by my opening example there, I paradoxically want to turn to Christianity itself in uh, this first reflection here in order to look for animist ways of, of looking at source material. Because this is a religion that actually has very strong animist competence, I think, in understanding and handling its own relation to its uh, foundational texts. Do Christians flagellate themselves about the incompleteness of their source material? Oh no, none of the gospel writers were actually Christians. John was some kind of Hellenic Gnostic, and Luke was a bourgeois Romanized Jew, and Mark was a little bit more of a radical Messianic Jew, and so on. You know, Do they torture themselves, Christians, about whether their contemporary faith is one-to-one -one with the preachings of that Galilean rebel rouser there, who ended up making a little bit too much of a ping on the radar of the Roman authorities in Palestine and ended up getting his ass executed? No, they don't. They also don't bury themselves in doubt about 
what Jesus actually really, really, really said behind these weird biases of narratives of these non-Christian gospel writers. They don't. Why not? I think reason, part of the reason, um, when you're talking about Christians with brains, (laughs) is that, that they have competent animist ways of relating to ancient scripture. Um, I actually think there are some quite serious problems in in, uh, the way that Christianity is sometimes uh, used to mishandle animist reality-making. Dogmatism is is one of the problems. Um, But that's slightly another debate. Here the topic is their, I think, very high level of animist competence in relating to their scriptures. The important motif is the Holy Ghost. This figure is a mediator that bridges between God's eternal plan and universal truth and all that jazz, and then into concrete, situated human contexts where the reader uh, of the Bible live, perhaps today. Uh, The Bible itself is a rather messy and contradiction-ridden collection of distant historical sources from concrete, situated human contexts. The Holy Ghost is seen as the presence of God or the working of God through the Bible into a specific historic congregation, a specific historic context. This means that this Christian deity, the whole uh, the Christian God, is always mediated into specific human situations. So from the Christian perspective, uh, it is the Holy Ghost that is manifesting in Anglo-Saxon England when people in that context are using the Bible as legitimization for medieval kingship, where the king is, <clears throat> is a sacred king who is seen as the replacement of Jesus on earth, for instance. It's also the Holy Ghost that manifests in, in Chile, Chilean socialist Christianity when they're reading the Bible as a call for the proletariat to rise up and take power. You know, it's also the Holy Ghost manifesting the will of God when somebody used the Bible for nationalist construction of statehood or to see Donald Trump as Christ, or see Donald Trump as the Antichrist. You see how dynamic this way of reading is. The Bible, which in itself is this messy ancient collection of other rather weird documents, always speaks in contextually relevant ways into history. The Holy Ghost is the working of God through the Bible in any situated human context where the Bible is being used. And, of course, the local interests and and language and concrete people and power game and values and all that stuff is always at one end of this bridge building that the Holy Ghost creates or set to create between humans and God through the Bible. Christians the ones with brains at least, you know, can even acknowledge is each other's rather enormous differences across the ages, right? right so the blood, blood baptism, this kind of jihadi-style Christian suicide mission by Roman execution, that's part of history. Well, we don't do that anymore, Christians would probably say, but apparently it was the working of the Holy Ghost making God's will happen through the people of that age. Um, now, From an animist theory perspective, this way of thinking makes a lot of sense. I think Christian thinking is is a rather precise, actually, 
animist analysis almost of how they use the Bible to produce Christianity. And just to hang with me for a little bit more of Christianity here, because I, I know that it probably gives a lot of you the heebie-jeebies and, and uh, that it kind of feels much cooler and much more metal to use voodoo and Native American religion, that kind of thing, to understand Nordic religion. So stay with me a little bit more. Stay with me. <laughs> Christians, Bible. Yeah. Christians use the Bible to bridge between God and their concrete social space. So then the Bible is almost like a magic mirror. It's like lines in the sand, like patterns and stars and tea leaves that they use to relate to their world also. And that relating is inhabited by subjectivity because relation is always subjective in, in, in some way or form. And it's inhabited by agency, loads of agency. Agency is the capacity to act, to do stuff to stuff. And through the use of the Bible, human communities are being forged, interests are struggling, political power games are played out, people align and win over each other, lose interests, coexist in tension, cancel each other out. And all this relation-making is, of course, intensely charged with agency. Agency that springs from the subject that inhabits Christian relation building to God through the Bible, the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost is in in an animist scholarship way could be seen as, you know, that subjective agency of Christian relating to God. Cool. Um, The Bible itself, at least for the Christians with brains, is of course part of this process. It is also a product of all kinds of historical, you know, chaotic, inconsistent, non-Christian stuff and power games and all that that stuff, which generates Christianity in people's relating to it or relating through it, the Bible. Therefore, the Holy Ghost, of course, also inhabits the gospel writers in their relating to their context. When Luke is emphasizing that Jesus was certainly circumcised, Or when Paul is so against circumcision that he's telling the poor Galatians that he hopes those who want to circumcise will cut it off completely. (laughs) Then, Then these people, these guys, they're manifesting their position, impacting their context in their age. And of course, also all the other contexts that follows them in which their writing became important. Luke and Paul had interests. They were historic men situated and immersed in struggles, power games and idiosyncratic, you know, tensions of their age. It was one of those numerous important moments in Christian history that early Christianity figured out its position in relation to circumcision. These voices were never not situated. And Christians, the ones with brains, they know this. It's part of the working of the Holy Ghost through history. And contemporary Christians, when they approach Luke and Paul, they enter into this great chain of relation-making between God and humanity, which, if you're a Christian, will probably lead to some sort of redemption of kingdom of God or something like that, right? Luke and Paul, they weren't Christians. Christianity is something that emerges as the Holy Ghost inhabits relation-making between concrete human contexts and the writings of these men. Cool. (laughs) Now let us try to apply a similar 
animist way of thinking to uh, contemporary people in search of traditional Nordic religiosities, polytheisms and animisms and so on. Uh, they will be approaching medieval writers who weren't heathens, like the gospel writers weren't Christians, men like Snorri Sturluson and, and Saxo Grammaticus, like Luke and Paul, these writers did have interests in the way that they spoke pre-Christian religion into their age. And, and I'm not a great expert in all these things and the exact history of, of what they did. I think Saxo was in, involved in state legitimizing and, and kings and all that kind of stuff, and Snorri perhaps in, in more in nation building and, and all that. Um, they were learned men, men of their age. They were writing their material into their context into the thinking of their age, into the language of their age, and importantly, the interests of their social space. They were very much, no less than Luke and Paul, doing, acting with the way they wrote and thought, and the way that they constructed pre-Christian religion. This doing is important. Now, from our modern perspective, we would tend to wish that, you know, oh, why didn't they just observe and describe <laughs> It's as if that would have been much better. <laughs> but they weren't. They were doing. And exactly that makes their writing, in fact, more charged in respect to animacy. Because doing is more animated and animating than detached knowing and describing. Which uh, yes, implies an detachment. The opposite of relating. So there is motivation, motivation, intention, agency, subjectivity in doing. So what exactly were they doing? What relating were they trying to create? And thinking with animism, that implies an uh, important question of what kind of subjectivity and agency then inhabits what they were trying to do. <laughs> and I'm just going to take a little look at Snorri Sturluson and his absolutely amazing, mind-blowing text, The Gulvaginning. Snorri was a politician and a navigator in a problematic uh, time, and he probably had loads, loads of political interests and all that stuff that I'm not completely read into. I'll focus on one interest that he certainly did have, and that is transmitting and safeguarding the Norse skaldic art, knowledge, and language into his age. The Icelanders of that time, they had this amazing cultural treasure that was immensely valued uh, in the Middle Ages. Everybody considered it, rightly, to be exquisite and beautiful and high status. That was the skaldic craft, being a Norse poet. They traveled the entire North Sea region with this craft. Um, but it was dying out because its poetry rested on the capacity of the listener to follow allusions to myths, narratives, cosmology of the old religion, and under Christian domination, the knowledge of the old religion was becoming more and more obsolete. So the uh, Icelanders, and particularly people like Snorri himself, they were losing out on some really serious, socially important value that they had. Value in very concrete terms. High status, income, appreciation of their culture, social access to people in power, influence. Now, losing all of that stuff was bad news, of course, for Icelanders. So this very mundane interest was part of Snorri's motivation to write the Gulvaginning. 
and and his other works uh, in this respect in this respect particularly the uh, the skull scarper mall right now a deity or spirit is the subject that inhabits our relation to a part of the world that keeps us alive the inuit sea mother for instance is the subjectivity the inua that inhabits inuit relating to the sea When you relate to the sea by hunting a seal, this quest for surviving is inhabited by the subjective relating to the sea, the sea mother. You know, this is also this is the case for all kinds of beings. Um, the, char- the characteristic uh, Scandinavian farm elves or farm gnomes, these Nissa Tomta beings, they are the subjectivity that inhabits the relating between. Um, a group of people, a family group, and their agrarian uh, foundation of sustenance. That farm, that earth, and those pe- those animals. That is their life foundation. So that intention, that agency, the subti- uh, uh, subjectivity inhabits everything they do to make the farm work well. So, <clears throat> saving the high-value poetry of the Icelanders from just sinking into oblivion because of loss of traditional knowledge due to the rise of Christian power, that project is also inhabited by a subjectivity in the same way as taking your livestock in over winter or hunting seals in a kayak. Life-sustaining activities are inhabited by subjectivity of relating to the world, basically. Um... Or, you know, like uh, the Holy Ghost is, is inhabiting Paul's acting, Paul's doing, when he's telling the early Gentile Jesus followers in Galatia that circumcision is very, very, very bad. <laughs> I'm trying to convince them of that. So what subjectivity then inhabits the skaldic art? What subjectivity inhabited the skulls, their craft, their way of life, and hence what subjectivity motivated taking it into a safe space through the winter. <laughs> What subject would, pray tell, motivate, empower, lend intention to transforming the skaldic art, masking the ancient wisdom in the encounter with the Christian domination of the knowledge hierarchies in Northern Europe? Well, what is the god of poetry? The masker, the Manager of power, <laughs> it's Odin. <laughs> I would suggest that at least one important subjective agent that lives in, that motivates, that inhabits with intention, act through that relating to the medieval context that Snorri was producing could legitimately be identified as Odin. Now, If you're a contemporary heathen <laughs> or something like that, I imagine that you're thinking right now, that's it. You know, I suspected it all along, but now it's flipping official. This guy is clinically insane. First, he tells me that the Holy Ghost is real and that's really cool and animist. And now he's actually saying that Odin is to Snorri what the Christians think that the Holy Ghost is to Luke and Paul. And yeah, that is kind of what I'm saying. This doesn't imply dogmatism, for instance. It's it, it, it's it, it's is an analysis of a flow of subjectivity that uh, is there in these texts. And dig this. When I'm saying this, I'm not saying it metaphorically. This is animist thinking, so I'm speaking literally. It's not a symbol or some such nonsense. You know, Odin is a literal subjective agent with which we share reality, which is literally 
at least in part, I would say, part of the flow of agency and subjectivity that motivated Snorri to write in the way he did. <laughs> so yes, my vain hope is that this will work as a little bit of a cliffhanger for the next video on how to approach historically problematic ancient textual sources, because in the following video I'll expand a little bit on this uh, uh, proposition. I'll talk a bit about uh, what it means, what it implies, and what we can use it for. That those flows of subject subjectivity and agency that we are participating in when we engage um, ancient texts, uh, and perhaps uh, particularly those ancient texts that make modernist 20th century style historians you know, tear their hair and bite their knuckles because they are doing, they are acting, they're not just observing and representing. Cool, so uh, see you to the, in the next video on uh, Odin, Snorri and the Holy Ghost and uh, thanks for listening. Step